Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. I think we have really good representation on the podcast regarding the weather in the United States right now. <laughs> I'm representing the good weather. Yes, and I'm I'm representing um, the weather of preservation, <laughs> cryopreservation. <laughs> it's below zero right now in Wisconsin. Oh no. So today we're going to talk about, um, not about weather, but we're going to talk about galactagogues and specifically domperidone and metoclopramide. And uh, we decided that we would summarize um, some of the literature on this and talk about common use of these meds for increasing milk, increasing milk supply. So I think I'll have you start because you did the work on domperidone. Sounds good. Um... So we we talked recently about the new AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, statement on the transfer of drugs and therapeutics into human breast milk. And part of that discussion involved galactagogues. And we felt at that time that another podcast on this topic might be helpful to some of our listeners. Um, I was particularly interested in domperidone because there's been some controversy about its use in the U.S., and also um, in Canada and internationally. And um, I'll go into the reason for that in a second. As I started researching um, on this topic, I reviewed quite a few published studies and statements, but I feel like for the purposes of our discussion today, there are really two or three that um, can give our listeners a good basic background of the science and history um, behind this controversy. And we can talk a little bit about our own clinical experiences. And I'm excited to, to talk to you more about yours because we haven't really um, talked about it so much um, in the past. So first, of course, um, I went to the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, clinical protocol number nine, use of galactagogues and in initiating or augmenting the rate of maternal milk secretion. Um, which was revised in January of 2011. And um, our listeners can find it on um, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine website at www.bfmed.org. And I have to just quickly say, even though I've been a member of ABM for years, I think I had never read this before very recently. And going into it, I was like, oh, wow. This is really quite helpful. Good. <laughs> and so it's interesting because the revision in 2011 has um, made some substantial changes from the prior version. But they start off um, with the definition. So galactagogues are medications or other substances used to assist initiation, maintenance, or augmentation of the rate of maternal milk synthesis. 
And there are a variety of reasons why um, people use Galactagogs. In recent years, there's been a lot of debate concerning the use of Galactagogs, and I think there are two main reasons for this. One is because most problems with milk supply um, that I encounter in my daily practice are due to poor management of breastfeeding that occurred prior to when I encountered the patient. And often those problems can be corrected by increasing the frequency and effectiveness of training the breast. And a lot of people um, who've gotten into the debate about galactagogs are worrying that um, galactagogs are being used without addressing those underlying problems. Agree. And then the other reason for the controversy is really that few strong studies on the use of um, pharmaceutical galactagogs have been done. There aren't very many, you know, double-blinded studies, as as we like to say. Um, and there have, I think, there was a Cochrane review recently that showed that there were just two um, controlled double-blinded studies having to do with domperidone, and we'll talk about those in a second. And um, because there isn't very good evidence um, and there are some potentially significant side effects, as well as some um, warnings that have been put out by the U.S. and the Canadian government about galactagogues, there's been some heated debate about this. Do you find that to be true when you're when the subject comes up? Well, um, I think that people don't know much about it, and so the controversy, I don't feel like there is, a, I think there's a controversy in the literature, like what we see in the in the protocol, but I think that your average clinician is like, yeah, Domperidone, and your average patient is like, yeah, yeah Domperidone. <laughs> that's, a, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And even, so one, so I, I looked at the um, the Academy's protocol, and then I looked at um, another statement, which I'll go into a second. And then lastly, I looked at an article that came out in um, 2013 in February in the Journal of Human Lactation, and it was um, by a pharmacist who sort of had gone through the litany of there could be this side effect and that side effect and this concern and that concern. And while I was trying to go back online and find the link to his article again, I accidentally found a podcast that he had done with the editor of the Journal of Human Lactation. And in the podcast, he was much more, you know, I'm really concerned that people use this without going and doing, fixing the latch and other problems, but when they use this correctly, it absolutely does work for this indication, and it really is quite safe. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised to hear him sounding so um, positive about it after having read the article, which didn't didn't really sound that way. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so this goes to the fact that uh, when people use um, domperidone for um, in increasing milk supply, it is what's called an off-label use in most countries. And for people who don't know, that means that um, this medication was initially approved um, for treating um, gastroesophageal reflux and other upper intestinal motility disorders, and it just happened that as a side effect, they found that it increases 
milk supply and lactating women. And it was never thoroughly studied and evaluated and approved by the U.S. Federal Drug Administration for that reason. And so some people are concerned because it wasn't um, approved for that use. Um, when you're trying to understand domperidone, it's helpful to remember that human milk production is its a complex physiologic process involving physical and emotional factors and the interaction of many hormones, um, and obviously prolactin is one of the main players in that. And um, domperidone is a peripheral dopamine antagonist, which means that the um, pituitary, which produces prolactin, um, is its release is inhibited um, by dopamine. And when you give domperidone, it blocks certain dopamine receptors, and as a result, um, the, the anterior pituitary um, secretes more prolactin. Uh, prolactin is really important for milk secretion, but this um, the science behind this is further complicated by the fact that there isn't necessarily direct um, correlation between a mom's serum prolactin level and the volume of milk that she produce, produces. And so um, it can be a little bit confusing and, you know, when we're sometimes doing blood tests on moms to see if she has a problem with her prolactin, there isn't necessarily an exact cutoff. If you have this much prolactin, you're going to have this much milk. Right. Um, that, being, that being said, there are some um, studies that show that giving this medicine increases prolactin and it increases milk supply. Mm-hmm. So it has been shown to be effective. And then, then some of the further debate has to do with knowing what really is the best dose and timing for giving the medication. And there's there is there's some difference in how different people practice. Right. The um, the other sort of part of this debate, which I think has been in the literature and in for a lot of people hasn't seemed to be really relevant to our patient population is some concern about um, side effects that were attributed when domperidone was given intravenously in high doses to some very sick elderly patients. And even though this medicine has been used, I think, since the early 80s, um, there were some concerns about um, it being used in really sick ICU patients in um, like early 2000s, and so the FDA came out with this warning basically saying, you know, we're concerned about the use of this medication, and then there was some sort of rebuttal from people who use it in lactation saying, our patients are really young and healthy, they don't have heart problems, we're not as concerned about that. And so specifically the concern was that um, Domperidone can cause something called long QT syndrome, which can lead to cardiac arrhythmias, and that really um, has been seen in much older patients and um, more in men than in women. And so personally, I am not worrying about this when I'm prescribing this to my patients. Mm-hmm. What 
Well, I, we can talk about that now, or we can talk about it later about long QT. I can tell you what I do about that. Yeah, um, jump right in. Okay. Well, for long QT, I always ask about whether or not uh, patients know whether or not they have a personal or family history of long QT. Um, if they're taking medications that, that that I know prolong the QT interval as well, um, such as amitriptyline, then um, I will sometimes do a baseline EKG or do an EKG when they're using both medications just to check the QT. Now, the problem with that is that if someone has long QT, it's not always going to be apparent on every EKG that you do on that person because it could be intermittent depending on where their level is at different times of the day. So that sometimes is not foolproof. Um, if someone has yeah. conduction abnormalities, then I won't use it either. So if I know that they have a lot of PVCs or I know that they have FCVT or something like that, which is superventricular tachycardia, you know, different types of tachycardias or atrial fib or something like that, I won't prescribe it. And I had a Yeah, I agree. And I have to say I haven't had very many patients that have had any um I don't think I've had a single patient who had an indication personally for Don Ferradon who had any um personal history of cardiac problems. And so that's I absolutely agree with you that it's important to ask for that history. Yeah, um, I think that's all that's all that you really need to do. Like I don't think that doing a baseline EKG on women is necessary. Because, again, it's not even going to be foolproof any, anyway. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I keep in mind when I'm thinking about that history and other medications that moms are on um, is that this um, medication is cleared through the liver um, using the P450 um, system and that there are certain foods and other medications that can um, change the metabolism of the medication. So I think... You know, grapefruit juice is one of the classic ones. Um, and so um, being cognizant of what other medications the patient is on. Right. So I tell women, like, they should not take it with erythromycin. They should not take it with fluconazole. Um, mm-hmm. Yep, those are some of the main ones. And then, and then we had a situation in Madison where a person who was on seizure meds um, took it and um, had her first seizure in 10 years. Um, and had been on the same oh, because medicine. it caused her liver to metabolize her seizure medicine more quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It changed how it she totally metabolized it. So, and the the problem with with the medication is that most people are getting their medications from a typical pharmacy that doesn't provide domperidone, so they don't really know about it that the patient's yeah. even on it. So, what I tell patients is that if they're going to be on a new medicine, to contact their compounding pharmacy. At least, you know, for those people that live in the United States to contact yeah. the pharmacy to have the patient make sure that she's talking to that pharmacist about what meds are on because the pharmacists who dispense it are going to be much more knowledgeable about the drug interactions or have access to a database that people in this country don't. Like Hippocrates doesn't, that we use in the United States to look for drug interactions, doesn't have domperidone on it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, I don't use Hippocrates very much because it's not fantastic for weight-based dosing, um, I find. Mm-hmm. Um, but but certainly, you know, and as a pediatrician, I don't, I take care of lactating moms, but otherwise I take care of kids and it's rare for kids to be on multiple medications. So I don't think about drug interactions that frequently. And certainly if 
Um, people are taking non-peridone. Sometimes they'll take it for a while, and they absolutely can add med- new medications during that time. So right. um, helping them to remember to contact the pharmacy or um, to call me if they have questions, and I can try to track down answers for them Right, um, can certainly be helpful. So the other, um, I'll probably circle back around a little bit to to um, the protocol in a second, but the other um, document for people who want to learn more about Don Peridone that's really useful is to read um, the consensus statement on the use of Don Peridone to support lactation, which was published by OCA um, in May of 2012, and it was by Flanders et al. And this is a, um, a statement that was put out by a number of um, physicians and endorsed by a bunch of different physicians and organizations, sort of talking about um, the use of domperidone and sort of the history of how it was initially, um, it was used in the United States for um, GI disorders, and then um, because of some of the problems with um, cardiac arrhythmias that occurred, it was um, there was a warning put out by the FDA in 2004 that I had alluded to, and how um, the there are some um, physicians who had petitioned for um, domperidone to be granted orphan drug status in 2011, and. I had heard that prior to preparing for this, but to be honest, I didn't know exactly what that meant. And so I went and found out that it means that it isn't necessarily... So Don Perdone was given this orphan drug status um, a couple of years ago, and it says that this drug is used for the indication of it's hypoprolactinemia when you actually go into the FDA website and read it. Um, moms who are, you know, needing help with their um, milk supply for one reason or another. It's not exactly very specific. And it is not stating that the drug is approved for that use. It's saying that it can be studied for that use. And it's orphan drug status applies to conditions, this is just their definition, um, in the United States that have 200,000 cases or fewer. And it isn't saying that it's been approved for this indication, just that they can use it um, to study whether or not it's effective for this condition. And the right. reason, part of the reason for doing that is that there is a larger study um, being done right now um, than was done previously. So prior to um, 2012, there were only two well-designed, randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded studies. And together, they had less than 80 subjects. Um, and when those studies were done, they were placebo versus um, domperidone, 10 milligrams, three times a day for one to two weeks. And both of the studies, um, both of these two studies were done in preterm, in moms who were nursing preterm babies, 31 weeks or less. And they both showed an increase in milk supply in the moms who were using the domperidone, but the studies didn't have a significant, didn't have a sufficient number of participants to 
um, prove that it was the medication rather than chance that caused the increase. Hmm. And that has to do with power of studies. And while it's really interesting to read, it says while the results were clinically significant, they weren't statistically significant. And mm-hmm. so they're essentially now doing a multi-center randomized trial with over 500 subjects called the MPOWER, E-M-P-O-W-E-R study, um, which is going on right now, which is hopefully going to give uh, a final answer on um, the, the statistical significance of using this, even though I think that we have had our own anecdotal experiences, it's really important to have that, that trial done. Right. And hopefully they'll come up with, this, with identify some subgroups that respond better than others, because I think that's really the information that we need. Um, there are many moms who will say they don't respond, and then some moms who say, it's a miracle, you know, I have all this money. Yeah. And yeah. One of, the, one of the third studies did sort of show that there are responders and non-responders, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been well-defined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that making milk is so complex, and you know, there's the prolactin issue, but then there's you know, there's the glandular, there's the there's the glandular level, uh, the complexities of what happens at the level of the lactocyte and in the breast itself, and and so we don't really know, you know, we it's hard yeah. to sort out, you know, where is the lesion sort of thing, like where is the mm-hmm. problem with making milk. Yeah, that's really interesting. A friend of mine who's a lactation consultant um, who is always really delving into the literature, I was talking to her recently, and she was telling me how she had come across a study that was done using domperidone and pigs and how they had given it while the pigs were pregnant and it had shown that if they gave it in a certain number of weeks when they knew it was the time for um, lactocyte proliferation, it had resulted later in greater weight gain um, Hmm. for those pigs. And she was interested because she thought, you know, for moms who have, um, you know, insufficient glandular tissue, that maybe, you know, someday if we have better understanding of this, it may be useful to help them in subsequent pregnancies. And I was like, absolutely fascinating. You know, I'm not not ready today, but really interesting um, Mm -hmm. to think, oh, yeah, we have multiple ways to attack this problem and, and the different problems that mom have. Insufficient milk supply is the expression of a bunch of different um, problems that moms have, be that right. babies in the NICU or, you know, separation, due to work or school. Oh, yeah, things. there's so many different issues. Yeah. And so the um, lastly, this, um, this article that I alluded to earlier um, – which was by the the pharmacist um, Philip Anderson, which was in Journal of Human Lactation in February of 2013, was called the Galactagog Bandwagon. And he was basically talking about how Galactagogs seem to be um, more popular and a lot of people are using them, and this may be rather than delving into what other problems are going on um, with the dyad. And interestingly, um, there were two other studies related to domperidone in that same um, journal issue. And one of them was about an Australian hospital that developed a standardized protocol for using domperidone and afterwards found that, not surprisingly, more people were using it. 
And so um, he essentially expressed some concerns that people are using glycogogs instead of fixing latch and, and um, frequency problems and that it's, it is easier to prescribe a pill than to deal with some really complicated problems. But I don't think that that means that, you know, this medication isn't safe or isn't effective. It's just that we need to not take the shortcut and go right there. Exactly. Absolutely. I agree. And it is, and, um, right. Uh, many physicians will just, you know, I, I think what I see in my community is that a lactation consultant will see a patient and the lactation consultant will say, well, you know, I think what you need at this point is you need either domperidone or metoclopramide. So then the patient calls her OB or her primary care physician mm-hmm. who's doesn't know a whole lot about lactation. And that doctor is usually going to be more comfortable with metoclopramide. And then they'll just call it in. And there's no one's talking to the patient about side effects, you know, um, yeah. either for domperidone or metoclopramide. Recently, a patient who I saw had gotten um, domperidone from her OB, and it was it was very similar to that situation. The OB was happy to help in you know whatever way that she thought she could, but she didn't know very much about the medication. And you know, the first thing I said is, well, what dose did she give you? Because I've seen um, anywhere from 10 to 30 milligram dosing three to four times a day. And that's mm-hmm. a huge, huge variation in the total daily dose. And that's right. um, certainly some of what's been discussed in these various documents. Where do you usually start? So what happened is that because we don't have any standards from the FDA, I went with Health Canada's recommendation that came out, I think, in 2012 to, mm-hmm. take ten, to, to give nursing women 10 milligrams four times a day. And I have stayed there just because I feel like if I'm putting myself out there to prescribe something that's not FDA approved, um, then I and should. And not talking about it on a podcast with me. Exactly. Yeah. So everyone is listening. Shh. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I feel like I should follow some sort of recommendation. Although I've heard some people say, well, you know, that dose of 10 milligrams four times a day is an industry suggestion to Health Canada and that it's not necessarily evidence-based and we should be, and we could use higher doses. But there was also a study, I don't know if you ran across this when you looked at the information on domperidone, that compared 10 milligrams um, four times a day with 20 20 milligrams four times a day. Yeah, that was in the same article, in the same issue of um, JHL. Okay. Um, And it was 10 versus 20 three times a day, and it, that actually was one of the ones where it said it was it was clinically significant, but not statistically significant. So the study exactly. wasn't big enough to know whether or not it really made a difference. It was a small so, group, yeah. This is, totally, this is totally anecdotal, but when I was in residency and I was, you know, working 80 hours a week and I spent many quality hours with my pump, I um, started struggling with my milk supply. And a um, pediatrician who I knew who was helping me out, she was going to write me for Domperidone. And at that time, and I don't know if you found this to be true of compounding pharmacies that you've worked with, the compounding pharmacy, because they, um, because of the way they make the medicine and how much the compound costs, they charge the same amount for a 10-milligram 
pill or a 20 milligram pill or a 30 milligram pill. Oh, yeah. And so, and I didn't know any better at the time. I was really naive. So she said to me, well, sometimes people do 30 milligrams, which I I have seen people talk about before, Mm -hmm. 30 milligrams three times a day. And then they'll wean it down to 20 and they'll wean it down to 10. And, but I I realized after talking to the pharmacy that it was going to cost me a lot of money because I was paying cash to get 10 milligram pills so that I could take dose and then wean it and so there this was you know part of what went into my mental calculations was oh I could get more medicine for the same amount of money and um yeah I was on a high dose of down yeah so yeah the doses right and that's yeah a lot of pills are actually like that um yeah so um should we move on to medical permite or should we talk briefly yeah absolutely the only I was going to say about um, domperidone is that I've I've had um, some physicians and other providers um, express concern about whether or not it was possible to get the medication um, in the United States and and I personally have not um, found it very difficult. Um, right. I've been practicing in Florida and California and compounding pharmacies do vary um, by state, but. In general, I found that the medication is available, and rarely do people ask me for the indication. Yeah, I think many states have compounding pharmacies that will fill it and mail it off to the patient if the patient lives far away. Um, yeah, I don't think it's—I don't think that's been a problem really. Yeah, um, yeah. good. Well, so I was now tell me about, everything you found out. <laughs> yeah, well, but. I, <laughs> My yeah, so metoclopramide um, seems to be the medication that many physicians are most comfortable prescribing because it's something that they've used in residency or currently in their practice for things like nausea and vomiting with migraines, nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy, or just plain nausea and vomiting or gastroparesis, whatever. Um, and years ago, back in the 90s, we used metoclopramide all the time for babies directly given to them for reflux. Um, when cisapride fell out of favor and then people used metoclopramide before and after cisapride. So there's a long history of using metoclopramide. Um, and there was an explosion of studies um, that were done in the 1980s using metoclopramide for lactation. Um, and most of these studies used doses of anywhere from um, 10 to three, 10 days to three weeks, usually 10 milligrams three times a day. And almost all of these studies had fewer than 30 subjects um, until a re, just, there was just one recent randomized controlled trial that was done within the last five years that compared metoclopramide and domperidone. So the problem with the older studies is that they were done in different countries, different populations, they looked at different endpoints. They were done for different durations of time, and they measured improvement differently. So it's, they're really comparing apples to oranges. But in general, most studies report that there is some degree of improvement in lactation. Um, but they're, again, their measure of improvement varied. So some measured the increase in prolactin level. Some measured the decrease in the amount of supplementation. And in cases where moms were just pumping, they measured the total increase in milk volume that was expressed. Some did AC, like the pre and post feed weights too. Um, 
Metoclopramide is passed through breast milk uh, to babies, um, and the relative infant dose is about 4.4% of mom's dose. And I think generally there haven't been many concerns about the effect of metoclopramide on the baby. And again, we used to use much, much higher doses in babies for reflux, and they've generally, they generally used to do okay. Um, uh, I guess uh, in terms of risks, though, of metoclopramide, the, really the big thing our neural the big thing is the way that metoclopramide affects the brain because it does pass through the blood brain barrier and this is a reason why I tend to go with domperidone more often when possible um metoclopramide is cheap but it has really significant neurologic side effects in fact for anyone who has a history of seizures depression tremulousness Parkinson's, any kind of neurologic condition, I will not give um, metoclopramide. And if it's given with medications um, that are used for depression, particularly SSRIs, um, the serotonin um, reuptake inhibitors, um, the, uh, the woman can develop a serotonin syndrome with excessive serotonin. Um, which is quite scary, and um, yeah, it is. And even yeah. without that, you can develop tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia um, is huge, and that's been seen in women who use it for like the longer you use it, the more likely it's going to happen. But I do have some patients who um, like have transferred to me from another physician for not for lactation purposes, and they're like tongue rolling and doing these things, and they don't even realize that. That this ongoing medical compromise that they've been using for years, you know, is causing these symptoms. Um, wow. So yeah. So other side effects besides that terrible tardive dyskinesia um, are, of course, depression. But a lot of women will complain that they just feel kind of dizzy and tired and tremulous, and um, they can also have something called bradykinesia, where they just move more slowly. So that you almost like induce a Parkinsonism in some of these women. Um, yeah, so, I agree with you. It's not my favorite, um, and I n- would never give it to anybody with a history of depression or neurologic problems. Right, right. So um, sort of getting back to that one randomized controlled trial that was done um, not too long ago, um, that was done in a NICU where they took 80 moms, and the moms were randomized to receive either domperidone or metoclopramide. Um, either, and for each medication, it was 10 milligrams three times a day. And they only gave it to moms who were already expressing a pretty good amount of milk. They had to be expressing at least, um, at least you know, some degree of milk to get it. But they were not meeting. They were not making enough milk to meet um, the requirement of 160 ml per kilogram per day for their babies. So there were these goals that were made for these moms. Um, and so what they found is that each of the medications increased the milk supply. Um, so women who received domperidone had a 96% average increase in milk supply and 93% increase for moms who took metoclopram, who took, I'm sorry, 96% increase in milk for those who took domperidone, 93% increase for those who took metoclopramide. So the difference was, you know, really not very much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, between the two. So they both were effective. And what I found most interesting about the study was really not so much that it worked, because I would anticipate that for NICU moms, these medicines probably work pretty well because they're separated from their babies, and so they're more challenged with getting their prolactin levels up with just pumping. Um, but the side effect, the, the, the rate of side effects, because 
the rate of side effects on metoclopramide was documented as only um, about 10%, which I thought was really low compared to what I see clinically. Um, and it was about 5% for moms who were on domperidone. And the side effects on domperidone were headache, loose stools, mood swings, and dizziness. So, um, you know, I again, I what I do clinically is I sort of read the riot act to women about domperidone and metoclopramide when we're when we're making a decision that this is something that we could move forward to and um, make sure that they totally, you know, it's total informed consent. And I find that most women will try to, who choose metoclopramide will choose it first because of the cost. And um, if they are the kind of people that say, you know what, I can take like any kind of medication and never notice like major side effects in my brain, um, then I'm more willing to give them that than if they say, yeah, I'm kind of sensitive to meds, then I, and then I'll usually say, no, no it's not, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable. And certainly if they say anything about depression, OCD, anxiety, seizures, any kind of neurologic thing, it's like there's no way I would even put, you know, a pen to paper and give them a prescription for it. Because you know, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, the way I feel about it is just like do no harm. So even though there are these whole ranges of dose of domperidone, um, you know, where you read people saying, you know, some doctors in Canada will say, well, I use twenty or thirty milligrams, you know, three times a day, and it's been fine. Um, if Health Canada says ten milligrams four times a day, you know, I don't want to do harm. And if there's a thought that possibly it could do harm, I'm just not willing to go there quite yet until we have, you know, some other body in the United States, like the FDA saying, okay, this dose we sanction, you know, this dose is okay. Yeah. And it's, I think, you know, obviously um, there is such a thing as a placebo effect and it has come up in, in studies with galactagogues before. And so it's, it's really important to get this um, new study um, information that's coming out because I want to know the amount of benefit I'm getting versus the amount of risk. And for you know exactly what you're saying, some patients who are extremely tolerant of medication, it's a different decision than somebody who's got a bunch of other you know underlying cardiac or neurologic problems and trying to make the best choice for every patient is really where the art of medicine comes in. Right, right. All right. Well, I think we beat this topic to death, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. So, okay, well, maybe what we'll do is, uh, well, in fact, we should plan on it, that we'll um, have another podcast in the near future on um, other galactagogues that are natural, like herbs and um, other substances that can increase milk supply. In case anybody has any desire to listen to more information on Galacticox. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Well, take care. Enjoy the hot weather, and I wish that you would, you know, <laughs> everyone would like take out their fans and blow it this way, and so we can melt out of our faces. Don't here. worry. Spring will be here soonish. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Anne. Bye-bye. Bye. And I want to remind everyone about our Breastfeeding Medicine um, Facebook page. Please like us at the Breastfeeding Medicine podcast page and say hi to us and also give us some suggestions of what you would like to hear in the future. Thanks. 
If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.